This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that between 80 to 90% of adults have had low back pain at some time in their lives. Fortunately for most, the episodes are self-limited, and only rarely does low back pain represent a serious medical problem. It's a very common presenting complaint in the outpatient practice, and it can result in significant limitations in our lifestyle. If you haven't guessed by now, today's topic of discussion will be low back pain. Today we're joined by Dr. Ed Laskowski, a Mayo Clinic physician and professor in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Dr. Laskowski is the co-director of Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine, and he's also a course director for the 28th annual Mayo Clinic Symposium on Sports Medicine to be held in Rochester, Minnesota, November 9th and 10th of 2018. Thanks for joining us, Ed. My pleasure to be here, Daryl. Well, I, over my career, I have seen a fair number of patients with uh, low back pain as their presenting complaint. What are questions that I should be asking them about their back pain? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in general, the same thing we would ask about any pain, really. Um, but the back is interesting because uh, many people's version of where the back is varies. So I always ask patients uh, to really point to where the pain is most. They may point to their hip. They may point to their low back or mid back. They may pay, point to their sacroiliac joint region. So that, that's helpful. So first of all, localizing the pain. Uh, again, the aggravating and relieving factors of the pain. In the back, in extension-based pain, or pain when they extend back of their spine, uh, may indicate some posterior element involvement. And uh, those can be seen, in, especially in young athletes. Uh, spondylolysis, which is a stress fracture of the pars intraarticularis. So if they have pain bending backwards, they may clue you into some posterior element involvement. If they have pain going forwards, maybe that's more muscular. Not always, but, but maybe more the paraspinal muscles. Uh, with the back, we always think of nerve root involvement. So we want to ask about radiation of the pain. Does the pain radiate into the legs? And if so, where in the legs? Again, oftentimes I'll ask them to, to describe and, and show me with their finger where the pain radiates. Um, is there associated uh, weakness associated with this pain, say, in the leg muscles? Can they not do something they were able to do before, or are they tripping? Uh, are there bowel or bladder symptoms? Those are, those are red flag symptoms for a significant neurologic compromise. Is there leg pain with coughing or sneezing or straining, say, for a bowel movement? Uh, any of those maneuvers, if they cause leg pain, could indicate a pinched nerve. All those maneuvers increase intrathoracic pressure, and if there's nerve root irritation, that may exacerbate leg pain. You know, I used to think that people who had occupations that involved heavy lifting were more prone to getting low back pain, but I think I've probably seen more patients who sit most of the day as their occupation. Is that an accurate uh, uh, a thought? Uh, does sitting tend to uh, result in problems with our low back? I think you're right. I think that, you know, both can be certainly excessive heavy labor can be a risk factor, but also we're, we're finding more and more the dangers of a sedentary lifestyle, both on our, our physiology as a whole and in, in the back in specific. And, uh, and again, sitting may lead to other factors such as obesity. Obesity is definitely a risk factor for developing low back pain as is smoking. Uh, tobacco has been found to be highly correlative. And 
many things play into how we feel, especially with back pain. And uh, there was an interesting study in, uh, in Boeing, and uh, their workers had a fair amount of uh, workers' comp issues related to back pain. And they did all sorts of uh, physical exam tests, range of motion studies, objective analyses, psychologic questionnaires. The most important predictor of returning to work after a back injury was they're answering the question, do you like your job? If they liked their job, they got back. If they didn't, they didn't. So, and depression, anxiety, all these things feed into how we feel. So those are important things to, to analyze in our patients also. You mentioned earlier some red flag symptoms. What are some others? What are some symptoms that would alert us to a potentially serious cause for somebody's low back pain? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So, you know, if, if there is a significant deficit in neurologic function, so if they, if they are tripping, they can't lift up their ankle, they have a significant weakness in muscles in the lower extremities, Um, If they have uh, sensation differences, and we especially are worried about uh, saddle anesthesia, and that's anesthesia or numbness around the anus. That may indicate uh, cauda equina, which is a significant problem with the nerve roots in the the low spine, and uh, that may also contribute to loss of control of bowel or bladder function. So if there's bowel or bladder dysfunction, if there's saddle anesthesia, if there's significant weakness in the lower extremities, those are all significant things that should be evaluated uh, in, in comprehensive fashion. If someone also has uh, a history of cancer, if they have uh, unexplained weight loss, if they have signs of infection like fever or chills, if they have night pain, um, if they're immune suppressed, uh, and uh, if they have a history of infection or intravenous drug use, those are all things, again, that, that pique our attention that, that could be a more serious cause of the pain. Okay. Let's turn now to the uh, examination of patients with uh, low back pain. What should we be doing in terms of the physical exam of a patient who presents with lower back discomfort? Well, and again, we'll we'll go just with our regular exam, how we examine any joint or, or any area. Observation is very important, and posture and alignment of the spine is, is important. Um, we look at, at people from the side, and oftentimes that pelvis is tilted. It could indicate tight hip flexor muscles, and, and if that pelvis tilts forward, that could increase pressure on the low lumbar spine and contribute to issues there. Um, are, are, there are there hamstrings tight? That may actually flatten the lumbar lordosis. Um, so, so just even walk, watching them walk and watching them move. Uh, if they can walk on their toes, that's testing the S1 nerve root. If they can walk on their heels, that's testing the L5 nerve root. So if they can't do one of those, if they have trouble rising up on their toes or if they drop uh, their heel, if they drop their foot, if they can't walk on their heels, that may be indicating a significant uh, radiculopathy or nerve root involvement. Um, we look at range of motion about the spine, again, in both planes, uh, especially flexion and extension. How are, is it limited? Um, it, do they have more pain with extension than flexion? Um, we do look at the movement of the low lumbar spine. There's a test called Schober's test where we look at the PSIS, um, posterior superior iliac spine, and draw a horizontal line across there. And then we measure 5 centimeters below and 10 centimeters above. We, we look at this standing, and then we have them flex forward. And we look at the distraction. 
And it's, it's not a sensitive test uh, or not a specific test, but it does, if, if that's really tight, and it could be because of spasm or uh, the, the segments aren't moving well, they won't have increased excursion there. Our usual excursion is about five centimeters. People will actually um, uh, excursion on the flexion part of that maneuver. If they don't have that, if they're very tight, um, that may indicate, again, muscle spasm and decreased segmental motion. It could be also because of maybe something like ankylosing spondylitis. So again, nonspecific, but it can clue us into to decrease mobility of the lumbar spine. Also in the neurologic exam, we want to check reflexes. And with a pinched nerve, with radiculopathy, they will be diminished on the side. So if, if there is a, a, a 3-4 distribution, L3-4 radiculopathy, the quadriceps reflex will be diminished. Or say there's a S1 radiculopathy, a sciatic radiculopathy, the ankle jerk will be diminished. If it's increased, and hyperreflexia, that usually indicates a central process. So if that's a spinal cord process, if, if the, especially if there's hyperreflexia that's bilateral or somebody has bilateral leg symptoms, that always will clue you into maybe there's a spinal cord process contributing or even forelimb symptoms. But the radiculopathy will be one-sided usually and depressed reflexes, not increased. Keeping up to date in our field is easier when you can network with colleagues from all specialties. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. It seems like... Uh, when I see radiculopathies, uh, it seems like L5 and S1 are the two most common. Uh, is there one of those that's more common than the other? Uh, you know, they, the lumbosacral radiculopathies in general are the most common, so that those segments of L5 and S1 are the two most common areas. And, and again, our exam should include a comprehensive neurologic exam. So you really want to have a good root screen in your armamentarium. Um, so you want to, in the lumbar nerve roots, L2-3 is the hip flexors and the hip adductors, so you want to test those. L5 is the hip abductors, and also the EHL, extensor hallucis longus, and all the ankle muscle groups, the posterior tibialis and perineal, so ankle muscle function there. The quadriceps is 3-4, and again, these, these are, you know, there's, there's overlap in the nerve roots, but in general, quadriceps 3-4. Anterior tibialis, moving the, the ankle upwards into dorsiflexion, that would be L4. Um, and then again, walking on toes and heels. So toes would be S1 and heels would be L5. So that's the, the myotomes. So if you have pain or weakness in those distributions, that may indicate uh, radiculopathy or pinched nerve in those areas. And the same with sensation. The anterior thigh is mainly the L2, 3, 4 nerve roots. The uh, um, L5 nerve root is primarily the lateral thigh and lateral lower leg. And the S1 nerve root is the back of the thigh and the back of the calf into the little uh, toe, the L5, mainly the big toe. So if we have an understanding of the, both the sensory dermatomes and also the, the muscle myotomes, we can kind of put that together with our exam and see what distribution their nerve root involvement may be in. You've covered history, you've covered physical exam, and I can remember days in the past when another standard part of the evaluation was to obtain x-rays of the lumbar spine. Mm -hmm. uh, there, I know, has been some literature suggesting we're doing too many x-rays. 
and may not help us all that much in the evaluation of the patient with low back pain. What's, what's your take on uh, when x-rays are indicated? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great question and a, and a talked about issue. And like you say, back pain is so common. If we x-rayed everybody who had back pain, we would be doing a, a large amount of x-rays and, and actually administering a large amount of radiation to people. So uh, there's been a lot of studies done, and, and really we've culled it down to if you have a major risk factor for cancer, or if you have cancer or have had cancer and uh, have new onset low back pain, that's probably an indication for imaging for the first onset back pain. If you have risk factors for spinal infection, uh, you know, you have those systemic signs of infection or IV drug use. Um, if you have cauda equina, which is, again, that loss of bowel or bladder control, severe lower extremity weakness, and that saddle anesthesia. And if you have a severe or progressive neurologic deficit, so, and again, a lot of people will have a a mild weakness, you'll have that uh, slight minus one weakness or so, that's okay. Uh, There's edema around a nerve root initially that, uh, that causes that. But if it's significant weakness where they really have significant loss of function, that's an indication also for, uh, for more immediate imaging. Are there some views that are more helpful than others? Mm-hmm. You know, an AP and lateral of the spine tell you a lot. Um, obliques used to be performed to look, especially in younger individuals, for posterior element involvement like spondylolysis or that stress fracture of the pars interarticularis. But again, that's a lot of radiation that, that is administered with that. And with digital radiography, we can get a lot of information just from our plain lateral film. So a, a, really, a, an AP and lateral really can exclude a lot and give you a good idea of the bony anatomy. Um, if there's a concern for spinal instability, say you're having uh, neurologic compromise and, and there, may be a, uh, there may be a spondylolysis which is associ- may be associated with a, with a spondylolisthesis or movement of one vertebra over another, you may want to do flexion and extension films just to ensure uh, the stability of the spine. But in general, for, for most cases, an AP and lateral are, are very good, very good x-rays. I know in the past, patients would often come in and ask for a spine x-ray, and it seems like nowadays they're more likely to ask for an MRI or a CT scan. Uh, When are those more advanced imaging tests indicated? Mm -hmm. Well, we get that question a lot, and MRIs especially. And, uh, you know, one of the things we say, especially in relation to the back, is we don't treat MRIs, we treat patients. (laughs) And that's because there are so many abnormalities that are detected on MRI that don't correlate with symptoms. And there was a classic study done at Yale a few years back where they they took 100 people without any history of back pain or any back problem, and they put them through an MRI scanner of the lumbar spine. Forty of them had herniated discs, and they were asymptomatic. So we're really careful in in how we utilize these tests. But if we need more information, um, the CT scan of the spine is very good for bony anatomy. So if if there's a bony um, issue that we want to rule out, a fracture, if we want to assess bone healing, say they have a a spondylolysis and and we want to assess maybe the sclerosis and the healing, um, CT is best for bone. Just really think of bone when you think of CT. It really assesses it well, whether there's subtle fractures, if there is a fracture, is it displaced, if there's bony healing from the fracture, and, and just really to assess the bone involvement. The MRI is best for soft tissue, so discs and nerve roots and soft tissue. And also now early stress reactions. So if there is some stress to, say, the pars interarticularis, we wouldn't pick that up maybe on the lateral, but the MRI may show increased T2 signal in the pars, and we'll treat that like a a stress fracture. 
the other indication for MRIs is, is if we're thinking of inflammatory disease like a spinal arthropathy. And uh, really, x-rays are not positive for months in those patients. So really, an MRI with contrast is the best test to pick those up. It's very sensitive and very specific for spinal arthropathies. So if you, if you have, a, a, especially a younger patient who has chronic back pain, it's better with exercise, um, you know, about 5% about of those will turn out to have some kind of spinal arthropathy. So those, and those may, they may be tender in the SI joint. If so, um, a contrast MRI of the SI joints may be very helpful. What about the patient you're concerned may have a spinal stenosis? You know, again, uh, both CT and MRI there can be helpful. CT, again, for the bony anatomy, because there's a lot of arthritic hypertrophy that can occur in the facet joints and narrow that canal, so the CT can define that very nicely. If we have associated neurologic involvement, again, the MRI is good for that because that'll get the, uh, the foraminal stenosis, the nerve root involvement, and, and, and other soft tissue elements that the, the CT couldn't get. So if, if somebody had uh, significant compromise in neurologic function with spinal stenosis, both of those tests probably would, would give unique sets of information. Okay. Well, let's turn now to management of patients with low back pain. Uh, you can probably tell how long I've been practicing because I remember in the uh, initial part of my career, we would always tell patients to stay at bed rest for their low back pain. Not necessarily the case, though, now, is it? That's exactly right, Daryl. We really want to keep people moving, and we find that movement helps, and, and it, it just really actually worsens things if, if they're sedentary and we keep them to bed for a long time. So that used to be with radiculopathies, too. We'd say, oh, rest for a while. People actually got deconditioned and did, did worse. So initially, it's, it's very simple things. So, you know, simple modalities, heat or ice, and either one is okay um, with back pain. Uh, ice, if you have a swollen joint, say you sprained your ankle, it swells up, yes, ice is good for reducing swelling. But for more chronic conditions or recurrent conditions, and, and that's the thing about low back pain is it's, it's pretty common. It usually resolves pretty quick, but it does tend to recur. So if, if somebody has episodes, either heat or ice can relax muscle and relieve pain. So either one are okay. Um, we, we think that, you know, very simple things to show the patient, simple stretches that they can do to kind of keep the back loose and opened up. Um, core, you hear of core a lot. Well, core is basically the midsection. It's not just abdominal muscles, not just uh, back muscles, it's everything together. So if you look at even from the diaphragm to the abdominal muscles, the oblique abdominal muscles, the um, paraspinal muscles, and the pelvic floor muscles, that whole system there, it's like a box, um, is the core. And we want that core to be as strong as possible. We say the best brace you can give yourself is your muscle brace. The best corset is your muscle corset. When those muscles are working together in concert, that's the best protection for your spine that you can have. And uh, again, we're doing more research on core strengthening to validate it, but uh, that is really, and we try and correct all the, the asymmetries, and, and we talked about how flexibility can influence things, so maybe your hamstrings are tight or your hip flexors are tight. We try and correct those issues. We try and uh, balance the load to the spine. When, when the load to the spine is balanced, we usually never have a problem. When it's imbalanced, that's when we can have a problem. So we use that core strengthening. We look at the lower extremities to look at the flexibility and make sure everything is symmetric side to side and, and appropriate. 
and uh, and though, and we we keep people moving and and really even with back pain just gentle things like walking or stationary bicycle or if you have a pool even walking in the pool the buoyancy of the water takes the pressure off the spine the walking gives you good movement gives you blood flow into muscle oxygen into muscle washes away some of the toxic irritated products a muscle can make um, so again very gentle things and that's the benefit of of keeping moving we call it relative rest we don't want to certainly have you do things that aggravate the symptoms or get into positions that aggravate the symptoms. But we do want to want to get the beneficial effects of activity. When should we request physical therapy for our patients? <laughs> Probably well, all the time, right? <laughs> that, that would be my answer. <laughs> Just because, again, um, it tends to recur so much. You know, about two-thirds of people have recurrent episodes. And, and <laughs> we have another saying, pain-free doesn't mean normal. Just because it doesn't hurt anymore doesn't mean it's normal. It doesn't hurt anymore, <laughs> but, it, the, but the strength may not be where it should be. The, the muscles may not be as flexible as they could be. Uh, the, the flexibility may be imbalanced. The strength may be imbalanced. So if, you almost need a trained eye to look at you and say, hey, well, these are the things that we'd work on with you. These are the things that we'd emphasize. And again, not to me, say that you have to go weeks and weeks and weeks of therapy, but oftentimes, you know, very few sessions can identify the, the factors in your life and in your body that may be predisposing you to have back pain. And if we can mitigate those with good, good exercise interventions, um, <laughs> lifting is huge, the way you lift. And I've seen in the weight room even people, I, I cringe when I see some of the people lift free weights. And it's like, you know, they're, they're doing weight training, but the way they're picking up the weight is a big risk to their spine. So learning even proper lifting mechanics, especially for those who have to do it frequently, that's very important because it's, it's usually cumulative stress over time that leads to these problems. One last question. We've used various analgesics for patients with low back pain, uh, whether it's nonsteroidals, acetaminophen, whatever. But what about muscle relaxants? Do they play any role in management of back pain? Uh, I'm a really a real nihilist <laughs> with respect to meds and back pain, Daryl. I think that muscle relaxants, uh, most all, are centrally acting. So I have patients that say, Doc, I'm groggy and feel sedated and I still hurt. So <laughs> I, I would rather, again, reinforce an active therapy and uh, you know maybe just some over-the-counter analgesics for a temporary basis, but really enforce modalities can be very helpful. Our therapists can be very helpful. There's some muscle techniques that we can use. We call them myofascial release to kind of break up tight muscle in, in, in actually quite an expedient time. We do dry needling, all sorts of things to get the muscle um, feeling better. And then, uh, you know, and then without the need for things that, that have side effects and contraindications and everything else. So. We've been talking about low back pain with Dr. Ed Laskowski, a Mayo Clinic physician in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Ed, thank you so much for your time. Today's episode is sponsored by Mayo Clinic CME. Mayo Clinic offers national and international courses. Network with your colleagues at an upcoming Mayo Clinic CME conference. Visit ce.mayo.edu and register today. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.